0: That's how it is. You're always interested in what, what you prepare the first. And we'll spend a lot of time uh, here in Ezra as we walk through. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 begins like this. Now in the first year, Osiris king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying this, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has appointed me to build Him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, of all His people, may His God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with the silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. Now these words, very interesting, are almost exactly identical to the last words in Second Chronicles. So if you just turn your Bibles just back one page, right there to Second Chronicles 36, verse 22. Let me just read it again. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that He sent a proclamation throughout His kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given Me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has appointed Me to build Him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. If you compare those, those are identical, um, save just a few verses at the end. But the same kind of things. And I'm telling you, these words are amazing. Maybe that's why they're repeated in the Bible. But they're amazing really for two reasons. First of all, what's amazing is of what Jeremiah had prophesied. Jeremiah had prophesied that Judah would come back into land 70 years after they had gone into exile into Babylon. He prophesied this before they went to exile. You Remember, during the the kingdom stage, um, Jeremiah was a prophet, warning the people and telling them, hey, repent and turn to God. And if they didn't, he knew that that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and conquer them and they would be taken away to Babylon. And he said that you're going to be there for 70 years. And after the 70 years are up, you will return again. That's what Jeremiah said. He said this in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This would be a good passage to write in your Bible right there next to Ezra 1.1. Jeremiah 29.10. Thus says the Lord, when the 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. They were here. And he said, well, when you go over there after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. So it's a prophecy of the exile, it's a prophecy of the return. Another passage, Jeremiah 25, verse 12. Then it will be when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans. Jeremiah 29, verse 10 talks about returning them back. Jeremiah 25, verse 12 speaks about punishing the Babylonians. And indeed, at this time, we can see the punishment of Babylon beginning because the Babylonians at this time 7 years later are no longer in power. Hope you notice here that Cyrus is not a Babylonian king. He's a Persian king. So you guys, what's up with that? Well, what's up with that is that Persia came and conquered Babylon. And conquered Babylon right near the end of the 70-year time and, and in fact, you can see there it says in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, he issued this decree. It was like like Cyrus just came to power. Babylon had just been destroyed. Seventy years are up, and here it is, the first year of his reign. Like the first act of what he did in parliament. He made this decree to let the Jews go back and return. Jeremiah's prophecy makes this verse amazing. What also makes this verse amazing is Isaiah's prophecy. You don't need to turn there, but at the end of Isaiah... Chapter 44, uh, there's this great, this great prophecy, and I'll just, I'll just turn there. Isaiah chapter 44, it's right at the end. Beginning of verse 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by Myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of His servant and performing the purpose of His messengers. Think about this. It is I who say of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. So think, Isaiah is just a little bit before Jeremiah and he's prophesying of the fact that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Well, Jerusalem at that time wasn't even destroyed. Later was. About 70 years after this prophecy, Jerusalem was destroyed. But he's talking about even after that, 150 years later, about how Jerusalem will be built again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, Be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who say of Cyrus... He is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now, catch this. Isaiah wrote this 150 years before Cyrus issued his decree. So 150 years before Cyrus happened, he calls him by name. That was was before Cyrus was born. Before Cyrus' father was born and probably before Cyrus's grandfather was born, he prophesied that there would be this man in Persia named Cyrus who would rise up. And this nation, Persia, would come to have power, power enough even to conquer Babylon and then to give this decree to rebuild. Thus says the Lord, this is Isaiah 45.1, "...to Cyrus is anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand, to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. Here it is. He's just saying, here is Cyrus. He's my anointed. I've taken him to subdue the nations and to loose the loins of kings. So you say, why did Cyrus come to power? How did Cyrus come to power? He came because God is the one that raised him up. In fact, the Persians defeated Babylon because God defeated Babylon. Look what it says in Isaiah 45 too, I will go before you, Cyrus, and make the rough places smooth, and I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. You might know that it's me who calls you by name 150 years before you even came up. God calls Cyrus his shepherd. He says, He will perform all my desire. Cyrus, this Persian king, is one who is God's shepherd. It's amazing because when Isaiah spoke these things, Jerusalem was standing, the temple was still standing. But Isaiah prophesied, the downfall of Jerusalem the raising of power of Cyrus, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that's all in the first verse here of Ezra. It's an amazing verse. I think it gives credit to the divine inspiration of the Bible. You who doubt the power and authority of God's Word, take heed because God fulfills His promises, His Word will stand. Well, we see here in verse 2, God's Word standing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus understood that God had placed him where he was. He said, God of heaven, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He understood that God gave him power. He understood that God had um, an agenda for his life. God's plan for him to build Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And that was his first... Act as a newly anointed king of Persia. He wasn't under mandate from the voters. He was under divine mandate to issue this decree. It is an open ended decree. In no way was Cyrus commanding the people in his kingdom to leave. He basically said, Whoever's willing, go up. Verse 5. Then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So when Cyrus said, whoever wants to go can go, who went? Those whose spirit God had stirred to go up and go. God was moving in the hearts of Cyrus. God was moving in the heart of the people. And there was support from all sides. Support came from the Jews who were staying in Babylon. Many of them gave. You look at verse 6. They give so as to fund the people to go back to Judah. Support came from Cyrus as they carried the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem put in the house of his gods, according to verse 7. Nebuchadnezzar, when he came and conquered, according to 2 Kings 24, verse 13, came and conquered, took all the articles out of the temple and brought them to the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, having conquered Babylon, now says, well, those need to go back to the rightful owner. And sent them back with the returning exiled people. And the people returned. They did. 42,360 of them according to Ezra chapter 2, verse 64. Because chapter 2 gives a whole list of all the people who came back with Ezra. So, actually, they, they, all the people went back. They, they didn't actually go back with Ezra because there's another man at this time. If you look at verse 1. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, seven years earlier, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to a city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliiah, Mordecai, Bilsham, Mishpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banna. And then it numbers the people. The key name here to see in this list is that, first of all, Ezra is not here. Because Ezra doesn't show up in the book of Ezra until chapter 7. But the key man here is Zerubbabel. He's the one that heads the list. And he is the one who leads the first wave back into Babylon. The waves come. Just if you remember, when, when um, Babylon conquered Judah, there were three waves in their conquering. It first came in 605 B.C. And they just began to get rulership over. And more came in 597 B.C., they taught, brought more exiles back to Babylon. Finally, 586 B.C., they wiped the city clean. And so there are three ways to Babylon. There are three ways back. And the first one comes here with Zerubbabel. He returns in 538. It was just short of 70 years from the first date of the exile, 605 B.C. Zerubbabel comes, the first wave. And then Ezra brings a second wave. And then Nehemiah brings a third wave, if you will. And so by outline this morning, I just want to look at those different ways waves of people returning to Judah based upon the person who leads it. So Zerubbabel is my first point. It's Ezra chapter 1 through 6 what we're going to look through. Ezra will be my second point. Ezra 7 through 10. And then Nehemiah will be my last point as we just continue through Ezra and Nehemiah. According to 64, verse 64 of chapter 2, we see that the whole assembly numbered 42,360. So about 50,000 people are coming back into the land and they come back into land in chapter 3. Um, we see here in chapter 3 when they came back in, you think about it. what was Jerusalem like. Well, it was wiped clean. Remember the imagery, is I'm going to wipe you like a dish, all clean. There's nothing there. There's a flat nothingness. So when they came back, there were no houses, no wall, no temple, no altar. And those who returned set their hearts upon the task of rebuilding the city, but particularly they're going to rebuild the temple first. Rebuild the temple. They started with the altar. This was easy. It was a small piece of furniture. To build it up. And they offered a sacrifice. I think they built it first because it was easy to build because it was small. But I think there's also a divine reason why they built the altar first. It comes in verse 3. So they set up the altar on its foundation. right The foundation right where the Holy of Holies was. They set it up right there. For they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. So they set up this altar because they were afraid of the peoples all around them. See, because building the temple was not easy. I mean, they were in the city without protection. Walls weren't built until Nehemiah would come. They were living in tents, makeshift structures, afraid of the enemies around them. And so they worshipped the Lord, who alone could give them security and safety. What a great symbolism behind that. What a great... um, expression of their heart to say God we are we are afraid but we're going to trust you with these things and surely if God can stir the heart of Cyrus to send his people back to Jerusalem then he can stir the hearts of his enemies to be protect so they won't don't attack the people of Israel and we're going to see in chapter 4 that that their enemies attacks were numerous okay this wasn't a vain exercise this was reality coming here in chapter 4 but the second half of chapter 3 records the beginning of the work of the temple Uh, Verse 10, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of the King David of Israel. Celebration. They sang praises, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Do you recognize that? hope so. Psalm 136, His loving kindness upon Israel forever. Right. Maybe they did a responsive reading, Psalm one thirty six. We don't we don't know. But there was time of celebration and there was singing and they gave praise to God. And all the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord. It was a great day. Construction had begun in the temple, had a ceremony to dedicate the building to the Lord. And when they did that, it did a little bit similar to what we do in our society today. I think about when a major building project takes place. I'm thinking about this picture that I always see. I I always see these these people, the board, men and women, and they got these they got these funny hard hats. They're actually like like plastic things. They've never worn before in their life. They just here wear these things, and they're given a shovel, which is clean. They've never like what's a shovel? You know, these are like board people. They don't know what's going on. And and what do they do? They say, okay, they put their they go like this. You know, and these hats aren't fitting quite right, and there's, there's a row of like five or ten of them, right? You ever seen pictures like that? Yes, I hope so. I hope so, and maybe someday we lay the foundation for Rock Valley Bible Church, right? You'll see me with a little hat on, this little shovel. Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. We call it brown, groundbreaking. Photographers catch... Write the picture of what was going on for the archives. People give speeches. There's a party with punch and cookies afterwards and everyone's happy because we're about to build this building. Wonderful. Well, that's what they did. They'd gather their musicians. The people worshipped the Lord with their chorus. The loving kindness of the Lord is is everlasting. I mean, think about how happy they would have been this day. They were exiled to Babylon for 70 years and they they pained and they longed to be in Jerusalem. I read last week from Psalm 137. May may my right hand forget its skill if I don't remember you, O Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem is what they sang. Psalm 121. They longed to be back there. Those of you who have windows open are may be in trouble. Ray says a severe thunderstorm warning, so um, Andy, I know you're in trouble because we parked right next to you and I rolled my windows all the way up. So if you you had to go, send your teenage children out to get wet. That would be okay. Anyway, think about how wonderful this day was. Seventy years in exile, then coming back. The beginning, the process of restoring Jerusalem. God was working among them and they knew it and they were rejoicing. When I think about this day, I think about the, the Six-Day War in Israel, 1967. During that war, in six days, Israel had conquered the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, the west bank of the Jordan River, including East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights. In six days, um, Israel's territory grew by a factor of three. Three tripled in size from what they were. And uh, I think about this picture. I've got a picture up here, Adriana. You can, you can move it ahead. You've seen this picture? The Israeli paratroopers having come in. They found themselves, the Western Wall. Right? You know this picture? You don't know this picture. This is like, some of you are shaking your head, no, I'm astonished at that. This is like one of the most famous of pictures. Here, Here's a 967. The paratroopers dropped in They're gazing around and they're like, we've got the Western Wall. We're at the Western Wall. I mean, this has been prohibited by the Jews for years and years. Ever since AD 70, the way they've been banished from the land, they did never had political control of this, the most sacred site for Judaism. And now they're there, they've secured the wall and they have it. And they've had it since 1967. They were returning back to the land. One of these soldiers, his name was Zion Karasenti, said this. He said, I was the first paratrooper to get to the Wailing Wall. I didn't know where I was. Now, for, for a good Jew, you'd know what the Wailing Wall is, because many Jews today, they know what the Wailing Wall is, but he was there, he didn't know where he was. I saw a female Israeli soldier, and so I asked, Where am I? And she said, The Wailing Wall when I think of all the soldiers that died to take Jerusalem, I wonder if they would have thought it was worth it. I think they would. Such is the wonder and the astonishment that, that, that now they own, they, they have control over the Temple Mount, which they lost for a long time ago. And, and this, this uh, testimony here in Ezra 3 is, is like that the day for the Jews. They were in the land, the foundation of the temple had been laid right where the old one used to be. And it's a day of amazement and a day of rejoicing. But not all were rejoicing. If you look at verse 12, Yet many of the priests and the Levites, the head of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of His house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not distinguish the sound of the of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now these are not tears of joy, by the way. Amidst rejoicing, these are not tears of joy. They are tears of sorrow. They are tears shed from the old men who had seen the first temple. The temple had been destroyed when Jerusalem finally fell in 586. And now some 50 years later, after the temple finally fell, 20 years after the first wave went to Babylon, there were those who were older than 50, maybe these 60-year-olds, as a 10-year-old, had seen the glory of Solomon's temple. Maybe they were 20 when they saw Solomon's temple and, and worship there and brought their young family in to worship there at the temple. And they remembered the grandeur of, of Solomon's temple. They look at the, the footings that had been established for the temple, and they knew that its glory would never come close. And so they wept because. These people are so excited, are excited about something which is small. The prophet Haggai addressed the situation. This is why I say they're not tears of joy, but they're tears of of sorrow. Haggai, a little bit later in Ezra, but I'm going to bring it in here because it kind of gives you an insight here. He says, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? In other words, Solomon's temple was so glorious. What we have now... Is like nothing in comparison. But now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea also in the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I hope you see what the prophets telling the people. He says, you know what, this work is small. It may seem small to you. It may even seem like nothing when you compare it to to Solomon's temple. But listen, I'm going to fill it with glory. In in fact, the latter glory that is to come is going to be greater than the former glory of Solomon's days. You say, well, how how can the latter glory be greater than the former glory? How, How can you be greater than the glory of Solomon? Well, I think the glory spoken here doesn't mean the glory of the building because the building was far less glorious and that building was destroyed in A.D. 70. Wiped out. Not even there. When Jesus looked at the temple buildings, He said, Do you see these things here? Truly I say to you, not one of them will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus knew they were going to be torn down. He so said, That's not where the glory is. But God says, I will fill this house with glory. What's He talking about? I think primarily was fulfilled when Jesus came into the temple. Maybe you remember when Jesus was brought into the temple as a little child. Simeon, the old priest, took him in his arms. He said, My eyes have seen your salvation, the glory of your people Israel. I've seen the glory. The glory is in the temple. And it was far more glorious than even Solomon's glory because that was the the Shekinah presence of God. This is the physical presence of God incarnate, Jesus Himself. And as Jesus was in the temple, He filled with more glory than in the days of Solomon. Solomon. See, when Jesus walked into the temple, is the very temple that these guys were building here after returning from the exile. Their building was preparatory for the future glory to come. And yet these words of Haggai also probably have an allusion to the, the greater temple in heaven when, when God Himself dwells among men and becomes their temple. certainly probably has an allusion to that as well. But I think here in Haggai when he's talking about this temple, I think it's talking about Jesus entering in. I hope that shows you, even here in Ezra, building this temple, it is significant because it is preparing the way so that Jesus can enter the temple and be the true sacrifice. Well, Haggai's words also were appropriate because, if you remember in his words, he said, take courage, take courage, take courage, don't fear, because they had stopped building for a time, and they were fearful. He says, don't. In chapters 4 through 6, we see reasons why it is that they could be fearful, The enemies of Israel pulled every trick out of their bag to thwart the building of the temple. They tried to deceive the people by flattering them. You can even see in chapter 4, verse 2, the enemies approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's household. They said, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to Him since the day of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria who brought us up here. Like enemies coming in and saying, oh, we're sacrificing the same God. And Zerubbabel said, no, stay away. They tried to come to infiltrate the work. They, they tried to discourage the people in verse 4. They hired counselors to go into the ranks to frustrate the people, verse 5. They even wrote a letter to Artaxerxes telling how terrible these Jews were and how they're, they're staging a revolt. And that worked. Because by the time it got to Artaxerxes, he said, oh, I don't want these people to build their own temple there. Stop the work. And so the work was stopped for 18 years. That's when Haggai came in and says, the rebel, don't fear, don't be afraid, start the work again. That's so what he said. At the beginning of chapter 5, we see how Haggai came to the Jews in Judah, encouraging them to build. Verse five, Chapter 5, verse 1, when the prophets Haggai and the, the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the Lord God of Israel, who was over them, then they rose and they began to rebuild, is what it says in verse 2. Haggai and Zechariah prophesied during this time. I quoted from Haggai a little bit later. I quote from Zechariah as well. But these were the, the ones to encourage them. And when their enemies saw them starting to build again, they, they appealed to Darius, who was now king of Persia. And this, and uh, the Jews were very tricky about this time. They said, "Well, why don't you have them search and just see if there was this guy named Cyrus who wrote a decree?" And so when he got back to Darius and he looked, he found indeed there was a decree from Cyrus found. And the tables were turned. No longer were the enemies against them, but now they had complete governmental support. They had complete governmental funding to finish the work of the temple. How like God to bring the the pagan nation of Persia to come in to fund the temple because these Jews were poor nomads in the land. And what I love here, chapter 6, verse 11. And I issued a decree, this is Darius, that any man who violates this edict Right, to support these people, to help give them funding, to give them authority. If you go in and you thwart this, this work like these other people had done, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. What does that mean? A timber taken, he would be impaled on it. Do you know what that is? It's crucifixion. The Persians were the ones who invented crucifixion. Then it came down to the Romans who used it more. But here it is being impaled upon a, a board. The Persians also at that time impaled people on trees. They just nailed them to the trees and let them die. The Romans, though, had a way of extending the agony of the cross. Well, what a great turn of events. They were opposed and now they have full support. Finally, the, the temple's finished in the sixth year of King Darius. Record the end of chapter 6 when it's dedicated, verse 16 and 17. And the sons of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered for the dedication of this temple of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats corresponding to the number of the twelve tribes of Israel. In verse 19, you see the Passover beginning again for the first time. Life is good in Israel in these days. Oh, things may be small. The temple might not be so glorious. But there are people in the land. There may not be many people, but there are some. The glory of the temple may not be what it once was, but there's, there's some there. And Zechariah said, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, "...the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it." He was prophesying. "...and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things?" says, don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise it when it's small because God was in that work. But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of a Lord which range to and fro through the earth. God was looking upon them and as He saw them um, building and saw the house built, they were blessed in that. He says, my people are back in my land and God was delighted to bring them back. That was Zerubbabel. Right? That's my first point. Let's pick it up now to Ezra. Ezra, his story begins in chapter 7 and ends in chapter 10. He's coming with the second wave of people. There's a big gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. By best we can tell, as you go and study the ancient kings, here's Artaxerxes, king of Persia. What makes a difference, difficult, is, is Darius is like a title and Artaxerxes is like a title. So figuring out who these kings were is sometimes difficult, but the best I can tell is about a... 60 year gap 57 years is what some people say during this time actually Esther arose and became queen you know the Hebrew maiden who became queen and became the means through which she saved the Jewish people from annihilation she was this time because remember she was in Persia Persia was in power during this time you can put in parentheses there between the end of chapter 6 and 7 Esther took place right here but chapter 7 begins with another wave coming from Babylon verse 6 describes Ezra says Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord was upon him. We see that Ezra was a scholar. He was an expert in the law. His giftedness helped Israel to, to, to found themselves, to, to be restored back in the land, to, to know what God's will is for their life. Zerubbabel was the builder. Ezra was the teacher. Beyond that, Ezra had the blessing of God upon his life. Look at verse 6. The king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord was upon him. That's the key to the success of Ezra. The hand of the Lord was upon him. We see that phrase again mentioned in verse 9 right there at the end. Because the good hand of his God was upon him. And you see it several more times talking about Ezra. God's good hand was upon him. One of the reasons I think God's hand was upon him was because of his heart. Look at verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra pursued the law of the Lord with passion. He set his heart to it. It means that this this book was his heart and his passion. You ever see somebody set their heart on something? I've seen our kids set their hearts on things sometimes, and boy, where the heart is willing, the feet are swift. Um, but particularly it was last night, I remember we had David, and uh, he was watching um, a video, a Thomas the Train video, and uh, loving it, happy. And he had set his heart upon Thomas the Train video, and it was time for dinner. And so I dutifully picked him up and carried him. As I'm carrying him over to his high chair, what, what's David doing? He's protesting. Ah, ah, video I wanna know Thomas Train. Cool choo choo. Whatever he's saying. He's he's making a fuss about it. And then I, I said he did not have a heart and a passion for dinner yet. Okay. But once we put him down, he he, he has if you know, Hamhawk has got a <laughs> got a passion for his food and so he he was loving that. But there he is, he set his heart upon his video. Well, Ezra had set his heart upon the law of God. You couldn't take him away from the law without getting a fuss. But his study wasn't academic. It was devotional, first of all. He sought to have it affect his life. It says there, he studied the law and he practiced it. He put it in action. He was a doer of the Word, not really hearer. Finally, he sought to use it to lead the people of God. He taught his statutes and ordinances in all of Israel. And I say for any of you who are in a position of teaching, parents, you're in a position of teaching, children's church teachers, small group leaders, if you're involved in any kind of discipleship relationship, formal, informal, you know, just have somebody who you're leading and teaching, you know, this is a great practice for us all. Set your heart to study God's Word. Set your heart to practice what you learn. And then only teach from the overflow. I think that's the reason why the good hand of the Lord God was upon him. because God blesses those whose hearts are completely His. And in fact, the rest of chapter 7 is all a testimony of God's blessing upon his life. When he went to Jerusalem, he went with the full blessing of the king. He was free to take as many people as he wanted to go. Verse 13 says that. This is the, the king's decree. When he left, he was bringing gifts the king had given him to help in the temple service of Jerusalem had given gifts and gold and bulls and just to give to the temple he was given more than he needed to allocate however he seemed best right verse 18 whatever seems best to you and your brothers do with the rest of the silver and the gold do what you want so he's given more because he was faithful to do what was appropriate the king committed even to give more out of his treasury if needed verse 21 and 22 the operations of the temple were tax free In verse 24, we inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, Levite singers, doorkeepers, nethanim, or servants of this house of God. They were a 401c3 organization decreed by the Persians. They were given freedom to appoint magistrates and judges. Verse 25, Ezra was given authority to rule over Jerusalem he was also offered troops and horsemen to protect them on the dangerous journey to make sure that all the, the royal treasuries made it into the house. And in turn, Ezra, Ezra blessed the Lord. Twenty-seven, Chapter 7, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing in this king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's princes, Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. There you just see how, how God was blessed and praised because God had blessed his life. God's hand was upon him, he a complete blessing of the king, he had a great following. In chapter 8 we even list the people who followed him into exile. Now there weren't a lot, whereas there were 42,000 coming in the first wave here, there are more like thousands coming. But, but quite a few came with Ezra. And he came into the land at the end of chapter 8. He places the, uh, the treasures into the temple and the people are rejoicing and all is going well in Jerusalem for about a week. <laughs> That's the best I can tell. I think it took about a week and his honeymoon was over. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now when these things have been completed, the princes approached me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Parasites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Ammonites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has been intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hand of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. <laughs> Isn't this typical of the people of God? No, a great blessing, come back into the land. They've been exiled for 70 years. They're coming back and they're there and they're rejoicing. And within 50 years, they make a mess of their lives. It's just, just like all of us. These okay? don't, don't think, oh, if I would have been there, I wouldn't have been there. No, you would have probably been there. They'd not separate themselves from the people around them, as clear in the law of Moses. They weren't sinning in ignorance, they were sinning thinking they was going to be overlooked. But when Ezra found out about it, gave him anguish of heart. Look at verse three. When I heard about this matter, it was just a week after coming there. I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel on account of this unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Perhaps Ezra back in Babylon had high thoughts of what the people in Jerusalem were like. I mean, after all, they were in the holy city. And after all, we're in the pagan city, and it's bad here, but it's really good over there. And and perhaps he was disillusioned a little bit. Perhaps he didn't know. I mean, mail traveled slow back then. He couldn't, you know, whatever, look on their websites and see the decadence. He just didn't know. And so he went over there, discovered that they were actually doing very poorly, not following the Lord It reminds me of the time when Martin Luther took his trip to Rome in 1510. He was a young monk, and and, and he was desirous, zealous in the matters of the church, and wanting to go to Rome, it was there that, that Paul had given his life for the sake of Christ. It was there to whom a letter was written, and according to Catholic tradition, Peter was even there, and he'd given his life right there in Rome, as well. And, and, and Martin Luther had kind of seen some difficulties in the church where he was, but he said, Boy, if I can only get to Rome, it's so much better. I mean, the Pope is there and all the glorious cardinals, and this would be a wonderful time. And do you know what happened when Martin Luther came to Rome? He found it about like Ezra decadent, awful. The priests were irreverent, the saints were mocked. The sacrament of the Eucharist was a joke among the priesthood. Blasphemy was rampant. Immorality reigned. He said, the closer to Rome you get, the worse the Christians become. He said, if there's a hell, then Rome is built on it. He'd walk some 500 miles to get there, and it was terrible. Ezra walked maybe about 800 by the time you go up around the river Euphrates and come down. But they had the same thing. Rather than seeing people worshiping God as they, they ought, they saw wicked people who transgressed the law of Moses. And after a time of mourning over the sin, he prayed. Look at verse 5. But the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord, and I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to You, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. All of the rest of chapter 9 is his prayer. He he reviewed Israel's past sins in verse 7. He reviewed how God had demonstrated His grace to Israel in 8 and 9, confessing their current sins in verses 10 through 12. And, how they're experiencing God's grace now, the fact they still were standing, said in verse 13. Let's just look at the last verse. It says, O Lord God of Israel, You are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before You in our guilt, for no one can stand before You because of this. These words, Ezra simply throws himself on the mercy of God and says, We are before You in our guilt. Where they were is really where we are before God Is well. We stand before Him in our guilt. God is righteous and we are not. And where the truth be known, we ought to have a heart and an attitude like Ezra that says we are before you in our guilt. But the good news is post-cross we can say, but Jesus Christ is our substitute. So though we are in our guilt, we stand complete and blameless before you. It's the mercy of Jesus, His sacrifice upon the cross. that allows us to stand before God not in our guilt, but in His innocence. Well, Ezra knew that they were in trouble because of their sin. And the people knew they were in trouble. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept, wept bitterly. Here you have a whole group of people, many people seeing this is wrong and weeping because of their sin. They felt their sin. I just say, have you felt your sin? Have you felt your sin? Have you felt your unrighteousness before God? Because in order to escape your sin, you need to first feel your sin. And they felt their sin. Hope comes in verse 2: Shekaniah the son of Jehiel. One of the sons of Elam said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from this people's land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Their hope was to make a covenant. To put away their God's reform. And in some sense that is, is our hope too. In terms of repenting and turning from our sin. But our hope is belief and trust in God to, to save us from our, our wickedness. Well, chapter 10 tells this strange story about how they put their wives away. I say, here's what we're going to deal with it. We're going to say, God, we're going to follow you now forever and we are going to resolve our past sins by divorcing our wives and putting them away. You look at that and you say, well, that is strange. I mean, To us, post-cross, it should sound strange because I don't think we should do this today. Paul said if you're married to an unbeliever and they consent to stay, stay married, don't put them off. But I think some of our strangeness will be reduced down if we remember who Israel was. Israel was the people of God ethnically the people of God. And God had commanded in the law not to intermarry with the inhabitants of the land, Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7. Because as you marry with them, you will inevitably take on their gods and follow their gods. And so marrying the wives from other cultures will just lead you into idolatry. And so God says, stay away from that. They are to be pure but people put away their wives. Now, this also teaches something here is that don't take example in the Old Testament as model for us to follow. Right? It's not always that way. And here you need to sift through. Do they do the right thing? I'm not, I'm not sure. What do they do with their wives? Like they, they send them back to Samaria? I, I don't know. What do they do with their kids? Do they keep their kids? or they send them back there? You know, I don't know what they did. But here's what I do know they did. They made radical action regarding their sin. That's what they did do. And that principle we can follow. right? Remember when Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out from you. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. It's better to enter heaven right, without an eye than to go into hell with two. Better enter heaven with only one hand, like Captain Hook, than to go into hell with two. He says, make radical Decisions about your sin and cut it off. Have you done that before? Have you taken radical action regarding your sin? That's what God calls us to do. It's merely a demonstration of repentance is all it is. It's not going to earn your salvation, but it's going to show, show God, so you know what? I, I've hated my sin. I've, I've confessed it before you. I've admitted it's wrong. And I'm doing everything by your strength that I can do so as to turn from that because I hate it. Well, that's the book of Ezra. rebel built the temple. Ezra taught the law. Brought the people back to spiritual reformation. And now we come to Nehemiah who built the wall. In the Hebrew text, very interesting. Ezra and Nehemiah flow together. It it doesn't stop with Ezra and then say, okay, now we're Nehemiah. It just kind of flows together in one book because it just picks right up. Now again, we have a gap historically from the end of Ezra to the beginning of Nehemiah. Uh, The gap is about 12 years. And we see with Nehemiah the third wave of people returning. Now, the first wave was some 42,000 people. The second wave, some couple thousand. And this last one was, boy, maybe a handful. Maybe, Maybe one, maybe Nehemiah. But they didn't travel alone those days. So, you know, maybe 12, maybe 50. We don't know how many came, but very few came. Nehemiah was a great example of a man who had a heart for his people. He was serving the king as a cupbearer in Susa, the capital of Persia. He happened upon a fellow Jew who came from Jerusalem. He said, how are things in Jerusalem? And hoping to hear a good report. The report was bad. He says, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress. This is verse 3 of chapter 1. They're in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Bad report. Bad report. Okay, so this is about 12 years after Ezra. Sure, maybe there's some reform, but the physical buildings are not doing well. And the news crushed Nehemiah. He says, I sat down, verse 4, and wept and mourned for days as fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. And here's something very interesting. The end of all of chapter 1 is a prayer of repentance. I hope you start seeing here a, a theme. Chapter 1, verse 7, he said, we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Then he claims the promises that God made with Moses and pled that He would be faithful to His people. And I think of anything that we learn from the return is this, is the place of repentance, sorrow for sin, anguish for sin, I mean, think about last week. I closed my message by looking at Daniel chapter nine, and you remember what Daniel chapter nine was about? It's a prayer of repentance that was right on the cusp of the end of the seventy years. They're about to enter, go back to Judah. Daniel says, "We have been sinful and wicked, and repent for our sins." Okay, Ezra comes into land, Ezra chapter nine. We are wicked, God. Repenting from their sins. Nehemiah chapter one. Repenting of their sins. In fact, Nehemiah chapter nine has the same thing. Of anything through these books, there is a, there is this um, theme of repentance. I think this is what the exile was all about. The exile was all about getting Israel to deal with her sin. That's what the return, that's why the return is so filled with repentance. Because, though maybe they hadn't dealt with their sin all the time, they had dealt with it a little bit, at least especially towards the end, when they saw how faithful God was. I mean, think about it. These weren't righteous people. These were the people of God who had come back into the land, but these were repenters. They were, they were those who confessed their sin, and God was faithful to them. That, that's what it means, the loving kindness is forever. It means God is faithful to his people, and he was still faithful to them, and they saw their sin. They confessed it. And I just say to you, this is what the exile is about. This is my message this morning. Be a repenter. See your sin. Deal with it. Confess your sin. And maybe there's sin in your life today that you've not confessed. He's holding on to, saying, I, I like my sin. How do I give it up? At least confess it to God and say, God, I'm I a stain and a reproach before your sight. I hate it. I'm turning from my sin. I'm trusting you. That's what, that's what happened three times Daniel 9, Ezra 9. Nehemiah 9. They're easy for you to remember. Go home. Read those chapters. See what repentance looks like. When Jesus came, he, he came preaching repentance. He said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He calls us to repent and turn and trust Him. Let's learn from their example. Let's be a church of repenters. Let's acknowledge our sin. Let's find the path of mercy. That's a path to joy. It's a path to life. There was hope for Israel in the faithful, loving kindness of God. There's faithfulness there's faith. There's hope for us too. Well, we could go through Nehemiah. Uh, the entire book is really set up in chapter 2. Is this conversation with the king. I'm going to try to go through real fast. As a conversation with the king. king says, why are you sad? He says, how can I be happy when our land's broken down? He says, what can I do for you? He says, well, let me take a leave of absence and go and build the walls. He says, okay, how much do you want? How much you...? So he got a leave of absence to go. And he goes and builds the wall to lead... Um, Jerusalem into safety chapter 2 verse 9 he arrived in town chapter 2 verse 10 the enemies are listed Sanballat and Tobiah and the whole book of Nehemiah much is Nehemiah versus Sanballat and Tobiah and we won't have time today to tell all the story but if you want to if you want to see the story tonight Becca and Nathan you guys are in Omi Omai O Nehemiah right? so you can go there and See that? Children's Play? If you want to. Hope Evie Free Church, 7 o'clock tonight. Have you guys had fun this week? you guys know the story of Nehemiah? Pretty well. Pretty well. There's Sandballat and there's Tobias. So these are like the evil guys, all right? They're opposing Nehemiah. I'm Nehemiah, right? And they're opposing me, right? Arrgh. So they're, they're doing that. If you want to go over that, or you can read the chapter, whatever you want to do. I know that. Um, We've seen Nehemiah, Nehemiah. We're going to be there tonight to see that. But the whole, the whole book is about this battle between the, the walls set up and the discouragements that come. And Well, to make a long story short, by the end of chapter 6, the walls completed, they're furnished, finished. The enemies heard of it. All the nations surrounding it lost confidence. They recognized that the work of God accomplished this work. The work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And then comes chapter 8. People finally are living in security, dwelling. They built this platform for Ezra and others to stand up and open the book of the law. All the people, anyone who could understand, were attentive to the book of the law. I love what's read in verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, explaining to give the sense so they understood the reading. This is what it is. They just stood up, and they read the law, and they explained it. And they read it, and they explained it. And they read it, and they explained it. And they read it, and they explained it. That is, by the way, something that's called expository preaching. Just taking the Word, opening up, reading it, explaining it, applying it. That's like all I do. I just read the Word, explain it, interpret it, illustrate it, apply it. And that's all they did. And it lets all Rock Valley Bible Churches about want to be Bible people who just read the Word, explain it, understand it, and respond appropriately. And how do they respond appropriately? Well, the law convicted of their sin in chapter 9, the people confessed their sin. This is the theme of the return. It is confession of sin. It is repentance. And I I hope today finds you as one who is a repenter, turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> God, again, where there's so much material to cover, we just scratched the surface in many ways. Um, I know of many men who have preached many, many messages through Nehemiah and through Ezra, and we just got one scope at both of them, and yet I pray that seeing the big picture might might stir us on to catch your heart to be those who To admit our sin and confess our sin and turn from our sin. So Lord, I pray even right now for Your Spirit to penetrate our hearts where we've gone astray. Confess to our wife what needs to be confessed, to confess to our children, our failures as parents, to confess to friends, to confess first and foremost to You. And Lord, I would pray that You would that God, show the glories of the Gospel clearly upon our lives. That, that we aren't forgiven by our repentance. But our repentance, the very thing that turns us away from our sin to You, so You save us by grace. And so if there are any here today who don't know You, who, who are harboring their sin, I pray to turn them back to You. Show them the the glories of Jesus. And may they find that in Him is more joy than being astray from Him. Give us a heart to be like Ezra, to study the law, to practice it, and then to teach it. Oh God, teach us these lessons. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just pray for me. right?